0: If you would, um, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. What I'd like to do this morning is come back to the subject of God's attributes or perfections this morning. And this can only be done with Scripture. Uh, Our theology that we have at Providence is based on what the Bible says and not what we think it should say or how we think things should work. But we conform ourselves to God's Word and that's how we understand who God is by what He has revealed about Himself in Scripture. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your love to us. We thank You for Your faithfulness to us, Lord, even when we are not faithful. Uh, Your compassions, Your mercy, Your grace, and the depth of each of those perfections of yours towards your own uh, is just immeasurable and they are infinite and so we thank you for who you are help us this morning Lord as we continue to open up uh, your perfections your attributes that you would give us understanding Lord that it would expand our understanding of who you are knowing that it is still extremely limited, and you are far greater than any tongue on this earth could express. So we give you this time together and ask that you be glorified and honored in it. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I just mentioned in our prayer, our understanding, even with the Word of God, is extremely limited we are finite creatures and so we can only handle so much and sometimes just as eric was talking about you have god's sovereignty and man's responsibility you come to that paradox within god with every attribute that we really study with every doctrine that we study there comes that point where we just have to let god be god And we can't really figure out the nuances of it all and put it all together. And I think in a very real sense, we won't be able to do that in eternity as well uh, because we will be blown away by the person of God. So what we're really seeking to do when we're talking about God's perfections, God's attributes, is to describe the indescribable. And these attributes of God are His characteristics. They are the various aspects of His essence or His nature, what He is. And I do prefer the use of the word perfection over the term attribute. And we get this word perfection out of 1 Peter 2.9. So if you will look at that. But you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Uh, The Greek word there, avatos, which is translated excellencies, Is a better term that describes God's attributes than the word attribute. And the reason being is it reflects the characteristic of God, the characteristics of God that each are perfect and inherently reflect a perfect God. The term attribute, on the other hand, does not necessarily reflect perfect characteristics of God. Um, It could hint that the The attribute originates from man's mind rather than from God Himself. So here's a little bit more of a definition of what a perfection of God is. And this definition comes from Richard Mayhew. God's perfections are the essential characteristics of His nature. Because these characteristics are necessary to His nature, all His attributes are absolutely perfect and thus rightly called perfections. Further, since these perfections are essential to God's nature, if any one of them were denied, God would no longer be God." So each of these are very important because they are what, in a sense, make God God. Not that we stack them on top of each other enough and we have God, but that He is fully all of these things. Now, when we come to the study of God's perfections, and we've done this, I think I've done ten messages on this and we've covered approximately about 14 of these perfections and so when we're doing this none of these are unimportant uh, some may have more of a wow factor but we're still describing the person the, the nature the essence of God but when we do study these perfections we do place them in categories and we separate them out but they are not able to be separated from God's person We do this for the purpose of studying them. But in doing so, we must remember that we cannot elevate one attribute or characteristic or perfection above another. Because every single perfection of God is intertwined with all of the others. Uh, And so, we tend to, if you're raised in a legalistic home, uh, anger is really, really big. Fear is really big. And so you have this angry God that's waiting uh, for you to step out of line and I used to fear that God would send my face through a windshield to get my attention about how I was living. And so there was all of these wrong thoughts and wrong theology that didn't come out of the Bible. And so we can emphasize one over another. and so we have to be careful to understand that all of them are intertwined, dependent on each other, work with each other perfectly. But we place them in categories so that it helps us better understand. And I've chosen to group them in the communicable and incommunicable categories. Communicable perfections are those that God shares or communicates to us. Obviously not to the depth and degree that God has, but to some degree, such as God is love. Uh, We can all love, although it is not like God's love, but we can love. The other category is His incommunicable perfections. And those are attributes or perfections that God does not share or communicate with others, such as God's aseity. No other being shares in this at all in any way. The perfection of being is that He is independent of all things and needs nothing. That He is the only one who possesses being or life within Himself. That is um, that if God did not, if He was not, did not possess this independence, this uh, being within Himself, then there could be nothing. Because there has to be something outside of it all that started it all. And it has to be one that is eternal, that has life, that's not bound by space nor time to create space and time. And so... And this, if you get into it as we have taught on before, it destroys the false religion of macro evolution. And even each of those categories, when we're talking about incommunicable and communicable, they can be broken down into further categories themselves, such as what we will be looking at today in the communicable area. Under communicable perfections, there are perfections of God's being. There are mental perfections, moral perfections, and perfections of purpose. And for our study today, I want to look at two attributes, uh, two perfections of God's being. And these categories are not hard and fast. You will read some theologians and you will find that they will place the ones that I'm going to talk about today in the incommunicable uh, categories, but... I place them in the communicable category, and Steve Lawson has said many times it is the same pie no matter how you slice it. So where we get our categories from really uh, doesn't matter. Now the perfection that we will be studying today, the perfections, uh, is God's spirituality and invisib- invisible invisibility. So let's begin with spirituality. I have the privilege, if you'll just go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I have the privilege to teach several Bible classes, and one of them is a Bible doctrine class. And each year that you have a class, you have classes with personalities. Each class has its own personality, they have different levels of understanding uh and you have to sort of feel that out at the beginning of the year to know how far you can take them some classes we just work with the basics all year long all year long and then there are other classes where you can move beyond those things into deeper levels uh and so I've had classes where the majority of the students just simply didn't know anything or they were very confused about things. They had brought in all of these different religious things and thoughts and ideas into their life and they couldn't sort those things out. And in those classes you get all sorts of questions. And I urge those kids to ask questions. I don't care what the question is, to ask questions. And so you get, in those types of classes, you get some more unique questions than you would get in some of the other questions like, what is God made of? Is He made of flesh and blood like we are? And from a general reading of Scripture, we understand that He is not those things. Or they may ask, what material form is His being? What is is He made up of? Is He pure energy? Or is He just pure thought and nothing more? But what the Scripture tells us is that God is none of these things. If you'll look at John chapter 4, look at verse 24 there. It makes it clear that God is Spirit. Spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We are told here by Jesus Christ that God is a spirit. And what is taking place in this passage is Jesus is speaking at the woman at the well in Samaria. We talked about this just a few weeks ago. And the discussion is where should people be worshiping God at? And Jesus makes it clear that true worship of God does not require that a person be in a specific place, like Jerusalem or Samaria. Now this is not to say that you can do uh, church on your couch, because we are told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But you can worship God going down the highway. You can worship God at work. Look at verse 21 of chapter 4 there in John. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Worship doesn't have anything really to do with your physical location, but your inner spiritual condition is the the issue. And this is because God is spirit. This tells us that God is in no way limited to spatial location. We should never think of God as having size or dimensions, even infinite ones. Meaning that we should not think of God's existence as spirit, as meaning that God is infinitely large. And that the reason that He is everywhere present is because He is so infinitely large. But as we learned in our study on omnipresence some time ago, God is fully present in all of His being fully present here in all of His being in every single place in the universe simultaneously. So He is fully God here. There's not an arm over here and a leg over there just because He's so big. He is fully present everywhere. There is nowhere where God is not. Uh, Look at Psalms 39. So you can see this here. Psalm 39 verses 7 through 10. Psalm 39 starts out, the psalmist asking in verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there if I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Nor should we go to the other side of the extreme and think God is small, that the universe can surround Him or contain Him. What did Solomon say in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27? But will God truly dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. So we cannot think of God rightly when we think in terms of space. But we can to some degree understand that His, exer- His existence is as Spirit. And God takes this pretty seriously. I want you to understand that. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. And the reason He takes it so seriously is He forbids people to think of His very being as similar to anything in the physical creation. He doesn't want you thinking about anything that might represent Him. Exodus 20, look at verses 4 through 6. It says there in Exodus 20, starting in verse 4, You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love Me and keep My commandments. God wants us to understand that His being, His essential mode of existence, is different than what He created. To think of His being in terms of anything else in the created universe is to limit Him. To think of Him as less than He really is. I want you to understand that as the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they are at the foot of Mount Sinai there, their sin was not in worshiping another God when they created the golden calf, but an attempt to worship the one true God represented as a golden calf. It may have been an attempt by the Israelites to portray God as strong and full of life, like a calf. But to say that God was like a calf is blasphemy. By representing God with a calf, it brings Him down. It makes false statements about God's knowledge, wisdom, love, mercy, omnipresence, eternality, independence, holiness, righteousness, justice, and so on. Now it is true, God has made all of creation and each part of it reflects something of God's own character. But to picture God as existing in a form or mode of being that is like anything else in creation is to think of God in horribly, a horrible, misleading and dishonoring way. Notice why God says not to do this. It says in verse 5, For I, the Lord your God, I am a jealous God. He is jealous to protect His own honor, His own glory. He wants you and I to think of Him as He is and to worship Him for who He is and all of His perfections. So God does not have a physical body nor is He made of any kind of matter like the rest of creation. Neither is God merely energy or thought or some other element of creation. He is not like a vapor or steam or air or space, all of which are created things. God's being is not like any of these things. God's being is not like our own spirits either, for these are created things as well. But what God is, is spirit. And whatever that means is a kind of existence that is unlike anything else in creation. If all of God's attributes are perfect, then God exists as a being that is superior to all material existence. Theologians refer to this as pure being. Or the fullness or essence of being. We talked a little bit about that when we did aseity some time back. There's no greater existence than how God exists as a spirit. This existence is to the superlative. It is far greater than any material or any material existence in all of creation. Before there was any creation, God existed as spirit. And yet we think many times that this spirit existence is somehow less than our own existence. We perceive that our current existence to be ultimate reality. I can feel and see and touch and that God in heaven somehow dwells in some sort of realm of mist and shadow and clouds but listen god is ultimate reality he is reality eric just talked about focusing on the shadows actually the land of mist and shadows is what we live in now this is the misty part this is where we can't see really well god's own being is so very real that it was able to cause all things to come into existence This also means that the Word reflects ultimate reality. The Word of God reflects ultimate reality. And for many of us, sometimes it's difficult for us to trust this Word that represents reality. Because sometimes what we see and what we feel and what we think and what we read in this world is quite different from what we see here. We look at ourselves And we look at ourselves in ways that the Bible says we shouldn't look at ourselves or think in ways that the Bible says we shouldn't think about things. But this is the reality. This is the reality. His Word is where reality comes from. It comes from a Creator who defines how we should live. When we live according to this Word, we are conforming our life to true reality. The world, the land of shadow and mist tells us That we can be happy by pursuing our own wants and desires, fulfilling our flesh. But the reality of that is that it leads to destruction. The world and our minds tell us that we are too far gone into sin and that no forgiveness is available. But the Bible is clear that no one is beyond the reach and restoration of God's mercy and grace. That's what the Bible tells us. The Bible also tells us that the best life to live now is the one that's lived in accordance with the Word of God. And when we are living like that, we are conforming our lives to ultimate reality. God is, in a way, redeeming things around us through us. As we change the way we talk, we're redeeming speech. The way we work with others, we're redeeming relationships. When we give the gospel, God is using us to see people changed by the grace of God. As we interact with brothers and sisters in Christ, we're redeeming things, good things. We're conforming the world around us to reality. And is it not our goal to tell the lost that they need to repent of sins and trust Christ as their Savior? which brings change from the inner man out, to tell people in love that there is a day coming where Christ will judge the living and the dead, that's reality. That's reality. In this world of shadow and mist, they sell you snake oil such as evolution, a fairy tale for adults. In the land of shadow and mist, they show you all sorts of things that are not real, that won't fulfill, that will never bring you satisfaction. Many times, and we know these things in our lives, we bought that snake oil and we find out that it did nothing to heal the leprosy of our soul. Only Christ can do that. So God is ultimate reality. His Word defines what ultimate reality is. And following it, obeying it, is to conform our living and our lives to God's reality. So we've been talking about how God is spirit. So now let me, that I've described this, let me define God's spirituality. God's spirituality means that God exists as a being that is not made of any matter, has no parts or dimensions, is unable to be perceived by our bodily senses, and is more excellent than any other kind of existence. At this point, it's usually the time when... You get the question, so why is God's being this way? Why does he exist as spirit? And the only real answer to that is that there is no greater way in which he could exist. It is the most excellent existence possible. This is a form of existence far superior to anything we know. And so you may be saying to yourselves, why then would we be categorizing this as a communicable attribute? It would seem that this should belong in the incommunicable category. And I think you will find some that definitely put it in that category, which would be appropriate since God's being is so different from ours. But the fact still remains that God has given us spirits in which we worship Him. John 4 again. Look at John 4, 24 again. It says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God is a spirit. We worship him in spirit. Our worship of God goes beyond just outward rituals and practices, it involves our inner man. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.17 but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. In this passage Paul is talking about how if a believer commits sexual sin he or she is involving Christ and he or she is profaning Christ when they do that. As a believer whatever you're doing you're joining Christ to it because he is one spirit with us. Romans 8.16 The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit bears witness to to our adoption into the family of God here. Also, when we die, our bodies are in the ground and our spirit is with the Lord. Who we are at our core... What truly identifies us will be in the presence of the Lord. This shell, this outer man is wasting away. One day we will receive a glorified body, but until then when we die, our spirit is with the Lord. So the point being, the reason spirituality is categorized as a communicable perfection is because there has been some communication from God to us of this spiritual nature that is somewhat like His own, though certainly not fully. Now related to God's spirituality is the fact that God is invisible. And I'll define this one up front. God's uh, invisibility. God's invisibility means that God's total essence, all of His spiritual being, will never be able to be seen by us, yet God still shows Himself to us partially in this age and more fully in the age to come. There's many passages that speak of this. Turn to John chapter 1. John 1. And look at verse 18. God is invisible. He's not able to be seen. It says in John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Just a few chapters over in John 6.46. John 6.46. It says there, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Uh, Paul gives the following words of praise in 1 Timothy 1.17. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In 1 Timothy 6:15 6, and 16 it says he who is the blessed and only sovereign the king of kings and lord of lords who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see to him be honor and eternal might amen John says in 1 John 4:12 no one has ever seen God In addition to this, there is the fact that we do not see God today with our physical eyes. We may perhaps wonder why God has decided to remain invisible to us in this age. But we should realize at least two benefits to this. God's invisibility means that God Himself decides to whom He will reveal Himself to. It says in Matthew 11:27, "No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him." Number 2, God's invisibility means that we must daily intentionally seek after fellowship with him and not take it for granted. Jeremiah 29:13 says, "You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart." We must remember that each of these passages were all written after events in Scripture where people saw some outward manifestation of God. For example, uh, very early in Scripture we read in Exodus 33.11, "...Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friends." Yet God told him in verse 20 of that same chapter, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Nevertheless, what did God do? He caused His glory to pass by Moses. He hides him in the cleft of the rock. And then God let Moses see the afterglow of God as he passed by. But my face will not be seen. That's in Exodus 33, 21-23. This sequence of verses and others like it in the Old Testament indicates that there was some sense in which God could not be seen at all. But that there was also some outward form or manifestation of God which at least in part was able to be seen by man. It is right, therefore, to say that although God's total essence will never be able to be seen by us, nevertheless, God still shows something of Himself to us through visible, created things. This happens in a variety of ways. When you say something or describe something, what do you do with that? When somebody's talking to you and they're describing something, you're picturing it in your mind, are you not? You go, it goes right into your mind and you start forming pictures of what it is. So when we talk about and describe God, what are we to think of God? We must think of Him somehow because that's the way we're wired. God understands this and what He does is He gives us hundreds of different analogies taken from our human lives or from the created world. And there is this huge diversity of analogies from all parts of creation that reminds us that we should not overly focus on just one or two analogies, but looking at them as the whole helps us somewhat in a visible way. Let me tell you what I mean. Genesis 1.27, it says, "...and God created man in his own image." Now, not in invisible spirit like he does in his essence, but there is a sense, some way in which we are created in God's image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Also, Psalm nineteen one: The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Romans 1.20 For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, both His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So these things that I've just talked about are not God, but it does reveal something about God to us. Look, if you look around you, you will see the fingerprints of God everywhere. If you look at your fellow believer, you see the fingerprints of God on them. Even those that are unsaved are created in God's image. The expanse, the heavens, the stars have the fingerprints of God all over them. The creation, what we have here on earth, reveals the perfections of God, His power and His nature. Although those things are not Him, they do in a sense reveal things about Him. Also, when we read the Old Testament, we see a number of what is called theophanies. A theophany is the appearance of God. And these theophanies took place in various visible forms to show Himself to people. He appeared to Abraham, Jacob, the people of Israel. He did that as a as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He spoke to the elders of Israel, to Manoah and his wife and Judges thirteen and Isaiah and Isaiah chapter six and others. But a much greater visible manifestation of God than these of the Old Testament Theophanies is found in the person of Jesus Christ Himself. Look at John fourteen nine. John fourteen nine. It says in John 14.9, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. In John 1.18, John contrasts the fact that no one has ever seen God with the fact that God's only Son has made Him known to us. It says no one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He, Christ, has made Him known. In Colossians 1.15, it says, Jesus is the inv- image of the invisible God. Yeah. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Looking at verse 1 in Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1, God having spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days spoke to us in His Son whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power, who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. In the person of Jesus we have a unique visible manifestation of God in the New Testament that was not available to the believers who saw theophanies in the Old Testament. But how will God, how will we see God in heaven that usually comes? Will we be able to see and know all of him? Well, the short answer is no. But will we see and know him better? Absolutely. It says in Psalm 145, verse 3, His greatness is unsearchable. That means even in eternity. But the scriptures also indicate that we will see God Himself. Matthew 5, 8, Jesus preaching on the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are the pure in the heart, for they shall see God. We will be able to see the human nature of Jesus, for He is in a body now and throughout eternity. But it is not clear in exactly what sense we will be able to see the Father or the Holy Spirit or the divine nature of the Son. The nature of this seeing God will not be known to us until we reach heaven. But whatever we see will not be an exhaustive vision of God. For we are still finite and He is infinite. But it will, whatever we see will be completely true and clear. It will be a real vision of God. Turn again uh, to 1 Corinthians. I want you to see these things. That's when we flip all over the place. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 9 through 12. says, 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face... Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. Paul here is illustrating what happens when the perfect comes. In their earthly lives, all Christians are children compared to what we will be when we are perfected in heaven. Perhaps Paul was comparing his present spiritual state to his boyhood as a child. A Jewish male was considered a boy up until his bar mitzvah, which means son of the law, after which he was considered a man. One moment he was a boy, the next moment he was a man. Our perfection in Christ will be a type of spiritual bar mitzvah, a coming into immediate, complete, and eternal spiritual adulthood and maturity. At that moment, everything childish will be done away with, All immaturity, all childishness, all imperfection, and all limitation of knowledge and understanding will be gone forever. In this present life, even with God's Word completed, and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we see in a mirror dimly. In our present state, we're not capable of seeing more. We can grow in our knowledge and understanding of God, but not like it will be when we are there. But when we enter into the presence of the Lord, we then will see Him face to face. Now we can only know in part, but then we shall know fully just as we also have been fully known. So although we will not completely see and completely know, we will know much more than we know now and we will see much more of God than we see now. I think the most remarkable thing is the close fellowship that we have with God. And that's what is really being emphasized when we talk about being face to face with God. Because God is an invisible spirit. Does He have a face? No, He doesn't. So what that's emphasizing is this fellowship. Listen to Revelation chapter 22 verses 3 or 4. It says, and there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And His slaves will serve Him. And they will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. People will still be human. And therefore, and it will be the greatest existence a human can experience. And so therefore, we still have this finite form and... We're not God, so there, there is lack there. We're not even close to God, even in our glorified state. Yet in heaven and in the eternal state, believers will not have any corruption caused by indwelling sin, so they will have a greater perception of God because their spiritual vision will be greater. The statements about seeing God in His face in the future should be interpreted as relating to a comparatively greater spiritual vision of God's revelation of Himself. Not an actual physical vision of His essence. In the eternal state, the believer's spiritual perception of God will reach beyond what physical senses can see. In Scripture, God's face is an anthropomorphism a human term to help us understand God. But God does not have a face. So this face of God is not His essence. When we realize that God is the perfection of all that we long for or desire, that He is the summation of everything beautiful and desirable, then we realize that the greatest joy of the life to come is that we shall see His face and experience the closeness, the, the personal relationship and fellowship that that implies. This seeing of God face to face has been called the beatific vision, meaning the vision that makes us blessed or happy. To look at God changes us and makes us like Him tells us in 1 John 3.2, We shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. This vision of God will be the culmination of our knowing God and will give us full delight and joy for all eternity. It says in Psalm 16.11, In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen, do you know this God? Do you know this God, the one and only true God? Will you dwell in His presence forever and experience that joy? Will you enjoy His love, His presence? The only way is through Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Christ is the door to being in God's presence forever. Make sure you know Him. Make sure you know Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this glimpse that you give of us, of yourself. And I pray, Lord, that it will increase our knowledge of you and our understanding of you, that it will increase increase our praise on our lips. And the thoughts on our mind will dwell on You, Lord. And that we long to see see You in a much greater way. To experience Your presence in a much greater way for You will be with us. We thank You for Your promises. And we know because of Your character laid out in Scripture for us that You will do exactly what You have said You will do. Lord, I pray for one that may not know You that they need to know Christ, that they need to repent of sins and put their trust in Christ that He will save them, that He has taken away their sins, and that the moment they die, He will keep them from that wrath, will catch them and place them in God's presence. We thank You for Your truth. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed.